Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Habakkuk chapter 1 and Psalm 50. The prophecy that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They all come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities by building earthen ramps that capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty people whose own strength is their God. Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate this treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? You have made people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foes pull all of them up with hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet, and so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? And then from Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am your God. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. 
If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked person, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things, I kept silent. You thought I was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to your res- with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thanks offerings honor me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, happy Fourth of July. Yay! It's the annual celebration of our nation, commemorating the signing of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. And at that time, the celebration involved, it was modeled after a celebration of the king's birthday with bell ringing and uh, bonfires and speeches and uh, processions. But in this case, America's first uh, celebration, they took the form of mocking the king's funeral, symbolizing the death of tyranny, and the monarchy's rule over America. It was a celebration of this rebirth of true liberty and justice for all that the original authors had in mind. Now, historian David Hackett Fisher, in his book Liberty and Freedom, writes about uh, how this this idea of freedom was actually uh, very wide and expansive. Uh, it It was not a single vision of liberty and freedom but an interplay of many different visions. He describes four freedoms that the major groups of the colonists had in mind. For these Northeastern Puritans, it was religious freedom. For Virginia Cavaliers, it was the freedom of a defined socioeconomic hierarchy where those who had much at the top, and then there was those at the bottom, like slaves and indentured servants at the bottom. For Pennsylvania Quakers, it was a reciprocal freedom that they had hoped could be shared by all, symbolized by the Liberty Bell. And finally, for the Northern Brits who migrated to Appalachia with their rattlesnake symbol and the saying, don't tread on me, it was a highly individualized freedom. So when the Pledge of Allegiance phrase was eventually framed in the Pledge of Allegiance, we realized that the all in the liberty and justice for all were really all white landowning men. And of course, that meant freedom from what was seen as unjust taxation from Great Britain upon the colonies. Now, despite this limitation upon whom freedom and liberty was applied to at the founding of our nation, we do know that the all has now expanded as our nation continues in this progress towards a more perfect union over the past 240 years. Yet, if we are honest with ourselves, uh, we are still far from the ideals 
What population groups, I ask, were missing from this freedom and justice for all that the America's founders overlooked? So on this July 4th Sunday, we want to take the time to see how scripture might speak to our frustrations and our hopes in matters of justice and freedom as we continue in this God's transforming justice message series in the summer based on the lectionary readings. And so in two of today's texts that Janelle read for us, there's a sense of injustice that the prophet Habakkuk and the psalmist Asaph express. We might find affinity with what they seek. They're seeking relief. They're seeking justice. And ultimately what we find is that they are seeking a relationship. Seeking relief, seeking justice, and seeking a relationship. So, uh, uh, through the pictures in the children's story, we got an idea of the Assyrian Empire, which was the empire that uh, was in power when Habakkuk made his prophecy. They ruled the Middle East with dominance, and they repressed this tiny nation of Judah. And to Judah was one of the two fi- remaining tribes of, of the, the 12 tribes of Israel that were, uh, were remaining at, by the 7th and 8th century BC here. And so at a macro scale, you had this Assyrian Empire. There's a picture of the, the spread of the Assyrian Empire. And that, that was on the wane, while Babylon was on the uptake. But internally within Judah, the people of, were, of God were violating this covenant with the living God. The local monarchs of Judah, like especially Jehoiakim, he, they were suppressing opposition. They colluded with the wealthy to keep and exploit the pure Uh, They perverted the legal system, and they ruled by violence and threats. The kings and the leaders and the priests that were meant to protect and serve the people of God were the ones who were abusing them. So it wasn't just outside Assyria, but it was also inside the nation, the people of God. In Habakkuk chapter 1, we observed three parts of this conversation. There's initial Habakkuk's initial complaint before God. In the first part, and then the middle, there's God's response to his complaint. And then the last part of the chapter one is Habakkuk's second complaint. If you take a look at the scripture. And though we read them immediately one after another, it's unclear whether this was a conversation that happened right away or it was stretched over a period of time. So we have to keep that in mind. In Habakkuk's first complaint, he laments to God that Judah's sin had, be, was go, going un, had gone unpunished for their social injustice. And he, so he's asking, he sees Babylon rising, and he's saying maybe the Babylonians here at the doorstep of our region could be part of God's judgment on Judah. He believed that God would punish Judah for her sin. And people of God, Judah were not living in, up to the promises of God's blessing for them. And in verse 6, God responds. And he says, uh, how, how the, and we discover that the rising Babylonian empire is not what Habakkuk believes them to be. They are just as ruthless and impetuous as Assyria. Injustice and violence actually intensified under the Babylonians as they were even more corrupt than their predecessors. As we look to verse 9, God continues to describe how ruthless they were. They were their power and their dominance and their strength overran all who were before them. And so, though Habakkuk had seen the violence of the Assyrians, the Babylonians took it to a whole another level. They deported captives to discourage them from rebelling 
They forced them into residential education programs to squash out any home culture and to disorient them. They controlled populations for their own benefit and to maintain their power. Habakkuk sought relief on behalf of his people in the arrival of the Babylonians, only to find that they were far worse than the Assyrians. The Babylonians had become so successful and powerful that they relied on their military might, their strength for protection, and scoffed at others who relied on primitive religions or gods for their protection. They had their weapons. Do the Babylonians sound a little bit familiar to you? When Habakkuk eventually protests the way that Babylon colonizes Judah, God seems to be complicit in allowing this to happen. And God seems to be unwilling or unable to intervene. In verse 2, he says, How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? I cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. And then in verse 17, he says, Is he to keep uh, on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? This doesn't seem to be you, God. Why are you letting us go through this? Once that we find that, often we, we approach scripture and we read passages like Habakkuk from a place of identification or irrelevance. For those of us who maybe face challenges and hardships or opposition and oppression and injustice, it's easy to identify with the relief that Habakkuk seeks. Habakkuk's frustrations with, uh, with those around him and even with God perhaps can be our frustrations. That God doesn't seem to respond on our timeline. We're reminded from words like these that God indeed is sovereign. We don't understand everything that goes on in God's timelines are very different from ours. And God tells Habakkuk that I am raising up the Babylonians. So he's, God is involved in this. And this gives us pause to recognize that the injustices we observe, they're not missed by God. They serve a larger purpose that we often don't quite see yet. God will do something about it, but not perhaps according to our expectations and to our demands. That's for those of us who identify with being oppressed. But for those of us who find ourselves in relative comfort, passages like these may seem irrelevant to our experience. And the historical context is so different from our present circumstances that we find it difficult to connect with what's going on. So we're tempted to just skip over these words. But here I ask you a question. What if we read these words from a different perspective? How often do we read scriptures like these from the viewpoint of the oppressors rather than as the oppressed? For most, Independence Day is something worth celebrating because it commemorates uh, the colonists receiving uh, 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 cutting ties from the British Empire. America was now founded as this independent nation, grounded not in the personality or the whims of a monarchy, of a monarch in power, but in this rational, objective document like the Declaration of the Independence or Declaration of Independence or the Constitution. And so rarely, uh, but, but we find that this came, this freedom and liberty celebrated by the founding fathers did not in fact offer freedom and justice for all. As we're reminded by the now official Juneteenth holiday, freedom and justice and relief came much later for African-American 
slaves. Rarely do we identify with those who have been displaced or oppressed. We seek justice and liberty, particularly when it is our individual liberty that is threatened. But we often overlook those whose liberty and justice are limited or disposed of completely in order for us to experience our liberty and justice. See, independence from Great Britain in 1776 did not bring freedom for African-American slaves. In fact, the growing economy of the early days of America was dependent on slaves. And it wasn't that the South was more, more uh, uh, guilty, more at fault for slavery than the North. And while we may think that slavery was more prolific in the South, slaves actually made up much of the workforce in the North as well. It was the textile and the mill industry of the North that processed all of the raw materials produced by the South. And all while Wall Street funded this industry that enabled America to slingshot significantly from this pre-industrial economy to the largest industrial economy in the world. Anne Farrow, co-author of the, uh, the book Complicity, How the North Promoted, Propagated, and Profited from Slavery, writes how one-third of the workforce in New York City, in Manhattan, were slaves. Here in D.C., where we live, there were slave markets right down the National Mall at the corner of Independence and uh, 7th Street Southwest, where the Hirshhorn Sculpture uh, Garden, Museum and Sculpture Garden is. Right across the street, there was uh, a place called the Yellow House. And there, there the slaves from this, the area who were no longer needed were shipped there and sold and, and, and sold off to sent out down to the south. And there's the United States Capitol Hotel down the street from the Capitol and numerous nearby taverns that uh, had basement rooms for keeping newly purchased slaves before they were sent away. All this happened on the streets or are happening on the streets where thousands of people today are going to gather to watch fireworks and celebrate freedom. And let us not forget that all this took place on land that was stolen from Native Americans, the original inhabitants of this area. Here in D.C., right where this church in this neighborhood on Capitol Hill, the Native American populations of the Nacotchtunk, the Powhatan, and Piscataway people were erased within 40 years of European colonial arrivals. In one generation, they were erased. Yes, we can celebrate and, uh, our achievements and advancements as an independent nation, but let us not gloss over how we arrived at those achievements and those successes. Who had to be made invisible in order for us to achieve our success? That's one thing that we can do on the 4th of July. When we read Habakkuk's words in verses 10 and 11 from the lens of Babylon, we discover we can't help but consider how America's story of liberty and justice from the oppression of Great Britain often overlooks how America herself had become Babylon in the process. Habakkuk's description of how other nations cower in Babylon's military might, in their technical prowess, and in discarding religion could very well describe our nation. How does our culture permit or condone violence or even respond to perceived injustice? We have the largest military in the world, 
We have the most guns per capita in the world, and we have the highest rate of gun violence in the world. We're number one. But our violence, here's some statistics. You can see down below is gun-owning uh, countries, and then up above is gun-related killings amongst nations. But our violence and injustice isn't merely physical. It's also economic. Despite having the world's largest economy and doling out the most foreign aid of all countries in the world, America also has the highest income equality, inequality in, of all G7 nations. The wealth gap between the richest and the poorest Americans has more than doubled between 1989 and 2016. These are just stats. You can look it up yourself or you can hit pause if you're watching on YouTube. You know, America seeks relief and refuge. We seek it in our guns in our, in our, and in the stock market. But do these stats really tell a story of growing liberty and justice for all in America or just for some? You know, Habakkuk hoped that the, the Babylonians would be a welcome response to the perceived injustice of the Assyrians. Perhaps like America's freedom from the injustice of Britain. And it's very easy for us to believe that the assertion of power and of dominance is a good answer for the slights against us. I think we Americans really like to give the proverbial or the literal middle finger to anyone who is we believe is marginalizing or oppressing us. So we take our cause to media, to social media, or to our favorite public figures. And we protest, we become allies, and we lobby. But scripture points out a different response when we seek justice. In Psalm 50, the psalmist Asaph describes this lawsuit proceeding in a divine courtroom. At first glance, we might think it's the people of Israel who are seeking justice like the prophet Habakkuk or like Job we were reminded of two weeks ago. And that's, in this psalm, it appears instead that it is God who is seeking justice, not Israel. God puts Israel in the hot seat where the living God acts as both prosecutor and as judge. And he sum summons all of creation to be witness in Israel's uh, courtroom proceeding. But we find the kind of justice that God seeks is not primarily about punitive or retributive justice. And though they are named, justice is not primarily focused on pointing out the wrongs and the offenses and punishing them. Instead, God seeks a different kind of justice. What is the core charge against Israel in Psalm 50? It's that they have forgotten their covenant with the Lord. Here we find that the kind of justice that God seeks is much more relational in its meaning. It, in particular, Israel had believed that their sacrifices and their rituals were what pleased God rather than this living relationship with the living God. In Psalm chapter uh, 50, verses 16 through 21, we see this described. It's up on the screen. We see the failure of true relationship described in God's charge against Israel's wickedness. They recited God's law on their lips and they spoke God's covenant, but their actions did not reflect their profession of faith. They reveled in theft and in deceit and in the, uh, the abuse of others, even their own family members. 
And they believed that because God did not intervene, that they would get away with it. And whatever they could get away with, well, God allowed it to happen. That was permissible. Do you see any of those shenanigans going on in our world? In our politics? In our workplaces? Maybe in our relationships? Perhaps even in our families? This is what this psalm might speak to us about. Israel's problem was a problem of ignorance and presumption. And God judges his own people to warn them on assuming the sacrifice, the privileges of the sacrificial system. They believed that, that their rituals could buy off God's pleasure and blessing rather than living in right relationship with the living God. And in being called as God's people, they had a great privilege, but they also had a great responsibility. They were to live differently, particularly in light, uh, particularly in how they treated others around them. In verses 7 to 15, God brings the charges against Israel. They had misunderstood the purpose of sacrifice. They believed that their animal sacrifices existed to feed God, like literally feed God. In verses 12 and 13, God reminds Israel that he doesn't need to be fed because he's God. He's not dependent on creation nor upon their sacrifices. And neither does God need beasts of the field and birds of the air to do work for him. He owns them all. And I wonder, perhaps like God's people in Scripture, it's easy for us as Americans to, quote, be a Christian nation and to believe that paying lip service to God with God's name on our currency and God's name on many of our buildings will keep God's blessings coming. We can say one nation under God. We can swear on a Bible in a courtroom, but not really live our lives in relationship with, in a covenant relationship with God. We can seek justice on our terms and from our perspective and forget that the kind of justice God seeks for God's people misses the point. If we, oh no, if we, if we seek justice on our terms without seeking this kind of justice in relationship with God, We'll miss the point. In doing so, we'll find that our sacrifices, whether it's for God or for a just cause, can just become shallow lip service or become self-righteous religious behavior. So, what's the point of all this? What's the point of sacrifice in Psalm 50? It's a sign of seeking relationship. It's a sign pointing to this essential relationship that we need to keep before us. In verse 14 and 15, what does the psalmist say? Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Well, this is God replying. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. The aim of sacrifice is for the community to give thanks to God and to renew the vows to live in this covenant And as verse 14 mentions, it's meant to be a sacrifice of thanksgiving and of vows. And, you know, because many of us, we're disconnected from this practice of killing an animal when we come to church. All we have to do is put on a, a wristband and a name tag, right? And maybe pick up a cup for communion. But at the time, this kind of sacrifice was referring to the peace offering. And the peace offering was the only kind of sacrifice where, uh, where, where the, the sacrificer, the worshiper, would actually eat 
a part of the sacrifice. The primary function of this particular sacrifice was to eat a meal together with the sacrificer's family and along with others who are needy in the community. And God was acting as the host of the meal, bringing God's people together. This sacrifice and the meal was all about a reminder of relationship between God and God's people. And that's what's carrying over into our present day uh, practice of communion or the Lord's Supper that we will celebrate in a few moments. And on this side of the cross, when we come to this table, uh, to this meal at WCF on the odd number of weeks of the month here at, here at our church, to remember Christ's sacrifice that fulfilled the covenant obligations of this relationship between a sinful humanity and a holy God. And yes, this meal that we share reminds us of the cost of our sins and of God's generous forgiveness. But a more essential element is this restoration of relationship, this reminder of covenant between God and God's people, between, and between our relationship as God's people with the world around us. The meal is a reminder of all who are in the family of God through faith in Christ that we can find welcome regardless of race and class and gender or backstory. And in this particular meal, God not only, not only acts as the generous host, but God also acts as a sacrifice by which we feed together, upon which we feed together. Because God has made uh, us for relationship, because God has made this covenant between God's people and fulfilled the terms of the covenant in the person and work of Jesus. We are now able to enjoy this covenant relationship with joy and with gratitude. Now I get it. In the days of this hybrid worship, we've got, you know, these little self, it's almost self-service Lord's Supper at home. Or may, uh, you, you just pick up something in the house or you pick up these pre-packaged communion elements here in person. I know this is not ideal, but let us not fall into the trap of forgetting that it's meant to be a meal. It's meant to be shared with the family, with our siblings in Christ, and with those who have much, but also with those who have less. It's a reminder. It's not, it's not, it's not the ideal. And let's not forget why we share this meal together. We, we do it so we can express gratitude towards God for this covenant relationship made possible through Christ Jesus, our Lord. And it is through this covenant relationship that brings true liberty and justice for all. It's, only, it's in this covenant relationship that this is made possible. Not just a constitution, not just a nation, but in relationship with the living God. We, we seek relief. We might seek justice. And as we seek for all these things, Scripture reminds us that they are ultimately informed by our seeking of a relationship with the living God. In light of Christ, we have the greatest example of how that freedom comes. And we have the greatest resource to give and to seek justice and liberty for all. We don't have to be, we don't have to get rid of Assyria and, and look to the allure of Babylon and become Babylon in the process. We don't have to mock those who are in power when they fall. We can seek refuge in the living covenant relationship through God's Son, Jesus. And from that place of deep relationship with the living God, we are given the resources to truly work 
for freedom and justice, not just for ourselves, but for all, for those who are unseen, for those who are displaced, for those who are overlooked, so that God would get the glory. Amen.